Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. My guest this week is Anna, who is Forest of Glory on Twitter. She's a reader of science fiction and fantasy novels and short stories. She also maintains a blog at Dreamwith, forestofglory.dreamwith.org, where she posts short fiction recommendations, thoughts about reading, and an occasional day-in-the-life post. Both of us have noticed on Twitter the kinds of ahistorical or unscientific details that knock us out of our reading experience, so we'll be looking at immersion and suspension of disbelief this week, but I think we'll start with just a bit of your general history with the genre and your academic background. So a couple of people have talked about a book that has got them into science fiction, and that has not been what my experience has been like at all. The first book I remember reading on my own was My Father's Dragon, and ever since then I've just always read fantasy and science fiction books and a smattering of other things, and I've been lucky because I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and I had access to great bookstores. During my teenage years, I was able to find stuff by women writers, and when I started being interested in feminist science fiction, I could find that. I never sort of felt some of the alienation that some other women who have talked about their experience with genre felt because I had good access. So it's been just kind of straight through, mostly science fiction fantasy throughout? Yeah. At some point, I you know got interested in uh, reading the classics, and I read a bunch of Heinlein and Niven and Asimov and whatever in high school, which I don't actually recommend you do, but I guess it's a nice taste-forming exercise. <laughs> yeah. So within, within the genre, do you have particular favorites? I do tend to read more stuff by women writers than by, me- than by men. Um, I do tend to particularly like stuff that is interested in exploring gender. And other than that, sort of what we were talking about in the intro, I really am interested in world-building. I like what I consider good world-building. Equally happy if it's up in space or a whole different world or some... I mean, I'm trying to think of, like, portal fantasies or something in our own world. Yeah, that's less of an issue. I mean, I particularly like things that deal with my sort of subfield. So if it has ecology in it or, you know, interesting urban planning, that that would be particularly good. But there's sadly not as much of that as I would like. So your academic background is ecology and urban planning? Mm Mm-hmm. And food systems. I often find myself thinking about reading, and I guess for me, especially longer form, thinking about immersion and my willingness to suspend disbelief and ways that authors can get me to really buy into their world or alternately knock me out of the world. Is that a useful paradigm for you? Yeah, I definitely have moments where I read something and it contradicts my knowledge and I'm just thrown out of the story. I think I first noticed that when you were tweeting about, I don't even remember the the book or story, but you were making a comment and, and I thought of it because I thought that's a it was a really interesting kind of thumbnail sketch or, you know, just heuristic to use. I think you said something like, in general in ecological systems, bigger stuff will tend to win unless there's a good reason it doesn't. And so when you see things like forests giving way to grasslands without some explanation of why, that sort of makes you inherently suspicious. Yeah, although I eventually posted about this on my blog, 
about how I was annoyed that this moor had trees on it. And several people who lived near moors commented that they lived near moors and some of them had trees next to them. <laughs> and it was because, unlike in this book, they were what's called a semi-natural ecosystem. And okay. so the moors were grazed by sheep. Mm-hmm. And that was preventing the trees from encroaching on the scrubby moor beds, whereas the trees were maintained without sheep. But in, in your case, there there were no semi-domesticated sheep to uh, keep the trees at bay? No, I, I definitely, ha- I'm afraid that my picture of moors is more from reading literature. So is mine. You know, and printing on the secret garden, particularly, yes. Yes. James Harriet, than it is from having a strong ecological background in moors. Mine as well, actually, the secret garden was exactly what I was thinking of when you were talking about moors and I was trying to figure out how do I visualize that. Let's think maybe, are there any particular stories or books that you found did kind of ecology or urban planning or things really well and made you made you think, yes, this this is good, I like this? Adorned Ocean, yeah, it's got this great... It's- planet of purple women and they have like this ecotech where they like use the ecosystem to produce the things that they need to survive and it's really awesome okay um and i always think that kate elliott does a really good job of like food systems particularly i was reading the crossroads sort of a couple months ago Mm -hmm. and i just noticed all the details she puts in about the rice culture and the food that people eat I am I am reading Crossroads and I am not yet at Rice, but I mean it's never she never she never info dumps. It's very right. incluing, but you know they go through at some point there are abandoned fields and the abandoned fields are rice fields and they you know they eat meals with rice and they don't have bread. Mm-hmm. I mean it's never she never like sits down and writes a paragraph about. This is what these people eat, you know, like Tolkien's little introduction right. in The Lord of the Rings about, right. you know, pipeweed and everything. But at the same time, the details are there and they're right. Yes. It's funny because she's one of my examples when I think about people who do kind of medieval history and theology right. Not for okay. Crossroads, but the Crown of Stars series. I have... I admit I'm a little intimidated by its length and haven't tackled it yet, although I do intend to read it. It was one of those ones that I was chasing used books through all of college, and I'm honestly not sure whether I ever finished it or not. I will be reading back through it again at some point. But the first the first couple of books, there's some details about medieval memory practices that were just kind of interesting and made me say yes this is someone who sort of as much as i as a you know undergraduate medieval studies major could tell knew what she was talking about in what she was writing but also one of the things that i get kind of picky about is medieval theology and people taking medieval theology seriously if they're going to include it and i really liked the the crown of stars series for that and and the way the religion is recognizably not the religion of 8th and 9th century Germany, but it's, or I think that's more or less the time period that's kind of, she's drawing on for inspiration, but it's also recognizably inspired by it and gets little details right, kind of like what would what would the staple foods be. Right. I mean, another one I think is pretty good is Marie Brennan's Natural History of Dragons series, and 
I don't know if you've read them, but she has an anthropology background, so I think she probably is getting the cultural details right. But she also has clearly done a lot of research on the ecology and stuff. I haven't, and I'm really, I'm excited about it. I'm, I've, I've got it on my shelf, and it's, it's one of the books I've been meaning to get to. What did I read that seemed similar-ish? I'm also excited about, like, women going out and doing science. Yes. Particularly biology. There's not enough right. science fiction about biology. Well, and, I mean, I, most of my background is medieval studies, but my, my dad did some research in early modern science, and so I picked up a little bit from him just about the crazy experiments that were being done early on in the Enlightenment involving electricity and... At the same time, the people who are doing these science experiments on electricity are also going out to farms and finding sheep that have been born with wigs like their judges and reading all sorts of significance into that. And so just the notion of what it meant to practice science at the time right, yeah. was really, really interesting. And, and again, not really what we think of today necessarily. And there was something I read and the title is escaping me. It was men doing the science in this one, but it was inspired by, um, similarly, I, th I think, by Darwin's voyage and um, early modern science, and it was, or maybe or. Yeah, Darwin is really interesting. Yeah. He's he's just like because he does all sorts of strange things. Like he he you know in college he's busy collecting beetles obsessively, and then he's really no he goes and studies barnacles for eight years and yeah just all sorts of interesting and sort of odd things on the way to publishing the origin of the species. I feel like in many ways there are there's untapped potential in non medieval. I mean. Setting aside the fact that, you know, medieval Western Europe is just a tiny part of human history and there's a lot of potential outside of Western Europe, there's also a lot of untapped potential outside of medieval history uh, in terms of intellectual development. That's also really interesting and fascinating. And I guess, well, I mean, Natural History of Dragons probably plays into that, right? Because it's yeah. getting much I more mean, well, Victorian. One of the things... One of the things that did throw me out of the story, but eventually was rec I was reconciled to with a later book, is she's not she's not closely modeling her history of science on the history of science in our world. Like the character, the society is mostly pseudo Victorian, mm -hmm. but then eventually it's re sort of revealed that they already have a theory of evolution of huh. some kind. So like. So their history of biology must be so somewhat different than ours, right? Even, even though they're social. So in the second book, this is a, this is the sort of detail that gets me. In the second book, she talks about some animal having an ecological niche. Okay. And this totally threw me out of the story the first time right. I read it. Yeah. Because I have enough history of I, as well as studying ecology, I've you know done some history some environmental history and stuff, and I know that in our world, the use of that term didn't really develop until, like, the 1920s. Right. So, like, I'm sure that zillions of people who don't have my background <laughs> read through that, and it doesn't ping them, but it threw me out of the story for a little bit. Yeah. I had... What was I... I I'm reading Uprooted, and every once in a while, there's stuff that just... Because it's a very, it's the You tone... mentioned on Twitter that, like, they talked about the precise time. 
of day, like yes, twelve forty-five or something. Early on, there's something about the precise time of day, and so I was getting concerned about clocks and whether they would have known about clocks and like had those easily available to them. And then much later, there's like there's a a kind of throwaway reference to God, and I think it's as God is my is my witness. So there are a couple of sort of real world phrases that are within the story. I'm nervous about. I'm. It's actually the thing I'm going to read next. There, I just the library finally gave it to me. I have noticed very few, and in general, I I adore it. Okay, it's, good. It's really because really a lot of people really it. like it, and occasionally people who I generally agree with really like things because they have great characters, and I think they have great characters, but I get too distracted by the world building. I tend to I tend to care a lot more about character than world building, and what I'm finding with Uprooted is that mostly the world building is really good and interesting, and also it's not quite. Like, it doesn't necessarily feel quite as much like secondary world fantasy where we have to accept that this is truly an entirely different world and therefore all of the little details are trying to build that world. It's more like a fairy tale. Okay. And so just through through that tone, I'm more forgiving about world building. It still pings me when things feel weird. Yeah. Although, to your point about people doing intellectual history differently than uh, might have otherwise developed. I remember the second Mistborn book by Brandon Sanderson. I think he's probably doing it on purpose, at least. I haven't actually read them, but I've listened to some of the writing excuses, and he seems like he's fairly deliberate about his world building. He's definitely fairly deliberate about his world building. What's going on in that series? Spoilers, I guess. The first book is kind of about the the overflow of the overthrow of the evil empire, and then the second book is at least in part about sort of how do we how do we form this new kingdom after we have overthrown the evil empire. And what he works his way up to fairly quickly from a bureaucracy run by, run by an evil empire is basically constitutional democracy. That seems awfully fast. He jumps straight from what's not even a feudal system kind of straight through Hobbes Locke Rousseau and all of the notions about human rights and property rights and how you would get those various human rights and property rights and just kind of assumes that those books have been written under the evil emperor and his bureaucracy so that he can get to constitutional monarchy. And uh, it was like, okay, we in, in one book, we managed to get through all of Western constitutional thought although it was not entirely clear to me again like hitting or missing many steps along the way um right and i remember finding myself very frustrated i think we sometimes forget how like gradual point of view shift can be really and all the steps we have to go to and how to get anyway so and how particular as well it seems like right like just, yeah there there were plenty of time because most of those were written with a very specific agenda. I think also of The Making of the Middle Ages uh, by Southern, who's a medievalist, and he goes back and he, he looks at four different famous medievalists and their stories of kind of what was happening with the Middle Ages and basically says every single one of these people is reflecting the anxieties of their current period. You know, so, so like one of them was written on the eve of World War One and Right. Had been thinking a lot about how nations were formed. Right? 
Right. Like, like that kind of. Yeah, I think people do that. I mean, well, we always re, I mean, the thing, thing about history is people are always sort of reinterpreting. Right. Based on current issues and it's not really as static as you want, as some people would like to think. And of course, one thing about that is, is realizing how contingent our particular development was and therefore thinking, well, in some other secondary world, how could things have gone differently? And, you know, my familiarity is almost entirely with European history and things did develop in lots of different ways elsewhere. Yeah, this is one of the reasons alternate history can be fun. But of course, I often find that people who write alternate histories have somewhat different ideas about how history works than I do. <laughs> yes. And they, 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 oh, and it particularly annoys me when they've like changed events hundreds of years ago, but you still have the same people being born and things like that. So I think that we have established that for us, world building is fairly important. And I guess... For me, there are a handful of cases where things have been done really well, such that I was more willing to buy into the book in the world. But it's usually much more something that knocks me out of my suspension of disbelief for a while. Yeah, I'm more likely to... It's often little little details. Like, I was reading... It was essentially a retold fairy tale, and they were... And the character was riding through a woods in a sort of medievalish society. And they mentioned that no one was allowed to cut down any trees. And I just, knowing a little bit about medieval forestry and, and the practice of coppicing, where they would come back every 15, 20 years, cut down the trees, mm-hmm. and then they would re-sprout from the roots. And then they come back and they'd use that, and they'd use that wood, that wood for like burning and fuel and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And just the idea that, this wood, no one was cutting anything, seemed like it would be a very dense and difficult wood, and she wouldn't be, the character would not have been able to ride through it easily. Right. Which, again, is something that I would totally not have picked up on at all. No, it's definitely, like, very idiosyncratic and about sort of what you know. Most of my knowledge of medieval forestry is, um, comes out of whatever's been thrown into the books I've been, the fantasy books I've been reading. Well, if you're interested, there's a, a good book. It's called The History of the Countryside by Oliver Rackham. Okay. And it's, it doesn't, it's sort of, it's a broad, it's broader than just forestry, but it goes through the whole history of the British landscape. And honestly, I wish that more people who wanted to write sort of any sort of medieval or later up to like 1945 or so based histories would read because they're always getting little de- landscape details wrong. Mm-hmm. Also, it's just really fascinating. I don't know, coming from an American perspective and then to l- and then learning sort of about where we really sort of privilege the idea of wilderness. Right. And this idea, this not very actually factually based in history idea of landscapes untouched by, you know, human hands. Um, to really think about how medieval landscapes were constantly being shaped by, you know, things like I mentioned earlier with the sheep and the moor and coppicing and this really complicated relationship between, you know, people and land that especially as like urban people, as modern urban people, it's often really easy to forget. It just now occurred to me that there is probably, I mean, probably the the way that Americans think about 
untouched virgin wilderness is not nearly as accurate as we would like to think it is and and we're erasing lots of native american civilization there yes but europe also like you'd probably have to look really far back to get any sort of significant untouched wilderness I know there are like whole really diverse ecosystems that like are endangered because people are grazing, are currently grazing sheep less. And instead they have fertilizer and they can now, you know, plow up the land and use nitrogenous fertilizer to grow commercial crops instead of what was previously fairly marginal land that they could, that they graze sheep on. Now, do you have any similar problems with far future stuff? Like when you read space operas? Yeah. I mean, there's often like, Silly ecology. Oh, there's this is goes back to the big things and little things. But in Scott Westerfield's Uglies trilogy, mm-hmm. there's this like field of invasive white flowers that have like taken over a huge swath of the landscape. And I just find, I mean, I just find this ecologically improbable. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Larry Niven is actually really bad at biology. Which is, like, he, he, people, you know, he gets into all these little physics details, and then you look at, like, the biology. I don't know, I got into a bit of a debate with a friend about the evolutionary of the motis and the moat of God's eyes, because I just also found that it very implausible that a species with those properties would evolve. He certainly seemed to buy into, and I haven't read that one, but I'm thinking of the puppeteers in, uh, the Ring World oh, yeah. and Known Space series, and the notion that this this very cowardly and fearful species developed, and like the ways in which that manifests itself. Oh, and, yeah, he's got this whole thing about like basically what you eat affects like your racial personality in there. Oh, the I, puppeteers are are herbivores, and the Kazinti, I think they are, right. are, you know, carnivores, and yeah, they're like super violent. Yes, understandings of evolution. Well, and I just, I find evolutionary timescales really hard to think about and wrap my head around. Like, it's never clear to me how long significant shifts and changes would take. Oh. And I, I can't think of any specific Depends on the examples, level of selective but... pressure. Right. sort of the problem, right? There's no, like, consistent rate. Yeah, I remember actually hearing a story not long ago about swallows nesting under highways and within four to six generations the wings got a lot smaller because smaller wings made them more maneuverable and it turns out that there is no selection pressure when you're nesting under a highway nearly as big as being maneuverable so you can avoid trucks periodically it'll come up that either something will have lasted for tens of thousands of years or evolution will have split two species or something and it's just i don't know how long those things take and i don't know how long other sorts of things on those timescales would go on. I find consistently with epic fantasy that I'm sort of wondering about how long has your civilization survived and those sorts of questions. I mean, epic fantasies do have a sort of tendency to seem like awfully static societies. Yeah. Even like medieval Europe, there's it's not in the moment. It's not. I don't think it's all that static. No. No, I mean, well... There's, I mean, there's sort of roughly a thousand years that we call medieval from 500 to 1500, which is really, by we call it, I mean, the people around 1500 looking back at classical antiquity and saying, this is all the stuff in the middle. But what, the Rome falls, I think a little before 500, Charlemagne's around 800, the Norman conquest in 1066. Right. 
uh, crusades around that time. Like there's there's, yeah, there's a, a whole lot of I mean, there's, there's a lot going social on. Social changes going on with that. Plus, there's you've got just... yeah, social changes going on. You've got all the things going on with the Byzantine Empire. A whole nother monotheistic religion rises up, and in a couple of different occasions, threatens to conquer the continent. Yeah, there was a lot yeah. going on in in that that thousand years that we've been willing to let Renaissance humanists call the Middle Ages. Not that I have um particular pet peeves about that term or anything. Is there a term I should use instead? No, I mean there's nothing medieval is is literally media iwum the the Middle Ages. Like there's nothing else in there but but uh speaking of historiography and letting historians look back and and sculpt and create our history for us. What about short fiction? You seem to read a fair amount of short fiction. Uh, yes. Unlike science fiction in general, it's not something I grew up reading. I think I grew I grew up before there was a lot of short fiction on on the internet. Right. You know, so there was short fiction being published in magazines, and magazines were sort of slowly withering away. And I would read the occasional anthology and, you know, enjoy it, but it wasn't something I read very regularly. And I didn't really get involved in regularly reading short fiction until I bought a supporting membership to Worldcon and started nominating for the Hugos, actually. And I thought, well, I should nominate in these categories. And to do that, it would be helpful to read some things. <laughs> exactly. It's fairly recent for you. Yes. Yeah, so I think my first supporting membership was Lone Star Con, like two, three years ago. So yeah, quite recent. Yeah, I had read bits and pieces of short fiction and anthologies, and then Long Hidden last year, I think. And I, I read that, and I said, oh, collections of short fiction can be good. That was particularly good. I think I'm more willing to risk reading a short story I don't like than a book I don't like. Yes. Because, right, it's short. You know, yeah. if you don't like it, you're done with it. And occasionally, like, I, you know, don't finish it because I'm annoyed or having trouble with the language or whatever it is that I don't like about it. Yeah, I know there are some people who can tune out after a couple paragraphs. You know, okay, this is not for me. I will move on. I am not yet at that point. No, not very usually, unless unless it's something where I just am finding the language extremely opaque, yeah. which occasionally happens to me. Anything that you've noticed about stuff that you particularly enjoy? I tend to like cheerful stuff. There's a lot of, in the sort of prestigious fiction, that can be really depressing and everyone dies in the end. I, I definitely prefer happy stories. I also, I like domesticity, which I guess is a slightly odd thing. I don't know, quiet stories and stories about everyday life in the future. I think the short story can be a particularly good vehicle for so. I like novels that are about everyday life, but... It's hard to hang a whole but novel But it's hard on to that. hang a whole novel on it. I do think that the everyday life does get at that, that world building that I enjoy, you know. Right. You have to find out how, what, pe if you have something domestic, you might get to find out what people eat. I adore finding out what people eat. <laughs> yeah, I definitely like those sorts of moments. In a short story, you can have that be kind of a significant piece of it, whereas in a novel, it's most likely to be a short story length piece of that novel. But on the other hand, I do like stories to be at least a little bit narrative. Stories that are, just forms or how-to guides or something like that, I, I sort of struggle to engage with. Well, I, I do want to promote short fiction because I do think it's an exciting thing that I enjoy talking about. It's a really diverse part of the field right now where there's many, a lot of new voices and interesting things going on. 
Each episode closes with a memory of a significant book. The right book at the right time, an interesting find, or just something that stuck around. I picked a trilogy of books because they were my very favorite books in the world when I was in fourth grade. Wonderful. And it's the Green Sky Trilogy by Ziffla Ketley Snyder. I'm probably mangling her name a little. Then the three books are Below the Root and All Between and Until the Celebration. And they're sort of, I guess, middle grade science fiction with telepaths and extreme societies. And I still have the copies that I read in fourth grade. They're a bit beat up, but... Wow. I just... I don't know, I, they, they were like the best things ever, and I had great philosophical debates with, you know, my friends about, you know, the content of these books, and they just had a really strong impression on me. At one point, I put stars for different categories of books on those little star stickers on the backs of all my books, uh-huh. when I, I don't know, in middle school or so, and they still have stars on the backs of them. And then they're also covered in clear contact paper, which I went through a phase of trying to preserve all my paperbacks by covering them in clear contact uh-huh. paper. So you can see that. So to me, they look like books that I've owned for a really long time. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at J. Sutton Morse. The show is on Twitter at King Cabbage Cast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.